Have you ever been so impacted, so emotionally uh, impacted by something that literally you had a physical response? You were with something, you saw something, you listened to a song, you watched a drama, you ate a meal, you observed a painting, you watched a perfect play or a perfect shot in a sporting event, uh, and you could not just help but have an emotional, physical response. You saw the work of a master, and you just had to respond. A friend of mine uh, asked me uh, a while back, he said, Hey, Greg, I'm, I'm going to California. I, I, I want to hit some hot spots. Do you have any suggestions? And we were talking about where he was going to go, and he was going to go and nap. And I said, Well, you know, there's a place, a famous restaurant there called the French Laundry. And he goes, Okay, I'm going to stop there. And so he stopped at the French Laundry. Now, when, we got, when he got back, he, he told me the experience. Now, you've got to get in your mind this, this guy. This guy is a hunter. He's a builder. You know, he likes power tools. And he's this type of guy, you know. And I said, so, Jake, how was the French laundry? He said, oh, Greg, I went into this French laundry. It was one of those... Foo-foo restaurants. I ordered pork chops. He goes, Greg, I bit into the pork chop. It was so good, I started to cry. I couldn't help myself. And then he started to tear up as he was telling me the story. I said, Jake, hand me your man card. You know? He's like, no. He goes, Greg, it was just so good. The, 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 the juices and the flavors just exploded on my palate. I said, now that you use the word palate, hand me your card. I mean, he just loved it. And they're known for their master chefs. They're people who can bring out the flavor of the food. Now, a masterpiece, a work of art, something that exceeds the normal and sets the standard. And this morning, as we come to the passage that we're going to look at, we're going to see Jesus' signature sermon. This is His masterpiece of sermons. Not my teaching of it. I cannot hold a candle to what He has done here. But it in its own beauty. Preachers long to preach something like this. Preachers know that they never will. It is the address of a king to his people, yet it is an address that no king has ever been able to give in all its elegance and its beauty. In this address, he will describe what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom and create a longing in the listener to become that kind of person. It is a masterpiece. But to understand this masterpiece, we need to understand its context. We need to understand its setting and its setting is found actually 
back in the book of Luke, it starts with a trial. Trial of a withered hand. You see, it's a Sabbath day. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders drag a man in front of Jesus and he has a withered hand. And it's a test. They want to see if Jesus is going to heal him. So they can pounce on him like a tiger. They want to say, see, you worked on God's day. How dare you? And Jesus is amazed at the depths of their depravity. That they would take a day that was set aside to do the will of his Father and turn it into a day of evil. A day in which the healing of a man would be considered wrong. And he challenges them on this. And he heals them. And he unleashes a fury. In fact, if you go back and track the word in the Greek of the fury that he unleashes and the plotting and planning, it, 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 the word that, that comes out of that is the word obliterate. They want to obliterate Jesus. They want to not only kill him, they want to wipe his memory, they want to wipe him from all existence, they don't want anyone to even remember that he ever was. That's the fury he faced. And so you know what Jesus did in the face of this fury? He went up to the mountain and prayed. He spent the night with his father, and he prayed. The next day, he comes down off the mountaintop. He gathers his disciples, and he picks the twelve. And then we come back to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23, and I'm going to start reading there. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, all those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus began to heal. He had great crowds starting to follow him and he healed for a reason. Number one, he healed to authenticate his message. You see, Jesus just didn't heal to heal. He wanted to prove who he was. And he wanted to prove his message. Secondly, he wanted to show the compassion of God towards man. Thirdly, he wanted to authenticate that he is God. His type of healing and what he did was the only 
of healing that only God could do. And fourthly, to authenticate that he is a prophet. You see, Jesus came to this earth and he had three key roles. He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. And in the role of prophet, he was showing power and he was showing the authority of a prophet that had not been seen since the time of Elijah and Elisha. And he was making sure that they knew that the prophet was back. And that the power and the words and the authority of the prophet was here. And now we come to chapter 5. Seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor. Notice that phrase. Seeing the crowds. Remember, Jesus is motivated by compassion. Jesus had compassion on the crowd. He loved the unloved. He saw them as downtrodden and unwanted by the powerful. Jesus is followed because they sense hope in His preaching. They find hope in His healing. There's something different about Him. They sense that compassion that oozes from Him. And Jesus exercises now his second role. Not that of the prophet, but that of the king. He addresses his people. He will teach them what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. For this king who has never had royalty, whose hands have never worn fine jewelry, but one day this king whose robe has never been a royal robe, but that of a commoner, yet will be raffled off at the end of his life, who's had no royal castle in which to lay his head, but only a stone or a clump of grass. He will not speak from a throne room because he is a king who's never lived in a palace, but only on a mountaintop. But when he speaks on this mountaintop, This mountain you will notice here in the Scriptures is no longer a mountain, but the mountain. The mountain. Notice what it says. He went up on the mountain. You say, why do we say that, Pastor Greg? It's because we know exactly what mountain this is. Today it's called the Mount of Beatitudes. You see, as we go around this beautiful lake, the Uh, Sea of Galilee, which literally means the lake of the harp. It looks like a harp, the whole lake. There's only one spot it can be. There's only one spot. And it's a beautiful spot. It's a spot where the hillside comes down and you have the beautiful lush vegetation all around. You have the gentle breezes coming up. You have the lapping of the lake. And you have beautiful Perfect acoustics. No sound men are needed. You see, you can stand on the top of the hill and talk in a very normal voice, and the people on the bottom of the hill can hear. And so you begin to speak. We know exactly where he spoke. And on that day, when the king addressed his people, it became the mountain. You know, Braxton said earlier about um, Right Now Media, if you have Right Now Media, and I encourage you folks, if you haven't signed up, do, you can go home today and go on your Right Now Media. There is a two-minute.
the Mount of Beatitudes, and it will bring this to life to you. So I'd encourage you. The king sits down. But instead of a throne, it's a stone. Now you say, why did he sit down? That's a technique of the rabbis. This means the teaching's about to begin. It means crowd. Listen, the very caption, important. Memorize them because the rest of the sermon will be explaining them. What the rabbis did was the very first thing that came out was the whole sermon. The rest of the sermon explained the first sentence. And so the crowd would memorize the very first words. So he sat down. This would cause the crowd to lean in. Then the disciples sat really getting ready to start. And it also gave the idea that Jesus was preparing a banquet of words, a banquet of teaching for his disciples, but that anything that fell off the table for his disciples was fair game for any other listener and any crumb or morsel the crowd could have. But Jesus was going to prepare such a spiritual meal for this starving mob that would overflow from his table. It would engulf his listeners. They won't know what hit them and they will walk away satisfied there will be no crumbs today did you see that little phrase verse 2 and he opened his mouth how many of you in your mind go what we know jesus isn't a ventriloquist why that Again, that's another rabbi phrase. It's kind of like if I were to get up to speak, I might go, <clears throat> or if I was at a, a banquet, I might tink the glass with my, with my fork or knife or spoon to get your attention. It was a getting attention phrase. It's saying, what's about to come, you need to hear. So notice, phrase after phrase is saying, you better listen. You better listen. What Jesus is about to say is life-changing. Now, when he spoke, not only did it get their attention, he taught so differently. He taught so amazingly that at the end of the sermon, you'll find this in chapter 7, starting in verse 28, it says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. These were His words. These were the words of God, not the words of man. They weren't man-made rules about man-made rules on how to hopefully make God happy, which the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching. They were God's living words. So today, as you go back in time and you hear them, I ask that you hear them as God's living words. Here's the phrase they would have had to memorize. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. This opening line took their breath away. They memorized it. It was on their lips. Oh, by the way, there's a hidden gem in here that we don't see in the English that I will share with you at the end. Don't let me forget it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These are a people who are beaten. These are a people who are captured. These are a people who are enslaved. They're ins- and told them what to believe in in a highly legalistic faith. These were a people who were cursed by their leaders. They were hated by their religious leaders. Many groups would vie for their attentions. There would be the Sadducees who were the liberals of the day who would reject the faith and just want to hold on to power with the Romans. The Essenes who would say, separate from everyone and hide. The Zealots who would say, let's be violent, let's be activists. There was nowhere to turn. The scribes, the Pharisees would stand and say, I thank God I'm not like you people. And if the religious leaders told them what to believe, the Roman leaders told them what to do. They had to play by Rome's rules. And to violate Rome's rules meant beatings. It meant taxes. It meant death. You were less than nothing in this system. You were a nobody unless you disobeyed. And then you were watched and punished. You were hapless. You were harassed. You were hopeless. You were harangued. You were haunted by both sides of these two most powerful forces in their lives, the church and the state. And both had their boots on their throats. And until Jesus came along, no one cared. And Jesus described him this, this way, harassed, helpless, burdened, weary, needing rest, sheep without a shepherd, unloved, unwanted. And when Jesus said this, Jesus said, heaven isn't for the military mighty or for the self-righteous. It's not for the powerful. It's for the poor of spirit. It spoke to something internal, not external. It spoke to something humble, not something proud. It was building a kingdom different than the kingdom of this world. It was a kingdom different than that of Rome or even that of the temple. This was radical. Notice the word it begins with, blessed. Blessed. This is more than happy. It's a state of God's blessing. It's internal in nature, not impacted by the world. It flows from the very character of God. It's a supernatural connectedness with being right with God. It is a soul that is filled with God's peace and contentment, even in the worst of times. It is an inner reality of understanding that you are blessed by God no matter what is happening around you. Imagine for those in a situation that were worn down, that were worn out when they heard this. These were a people that had been made to feel that God didn't want them and that their leaders despised them. And now they're hearing, blessed. 
They'd never heard that before. Blessed? Blessed? Friends, I can't earn God's favor. I can't earn God's love. I can't do anything that would make Him want me. And that's the beauty. Even for me, God wants me even though I didn't want Him. And that's the heart of God. God desires to bless. And if you don't believe me, then explain why eight times Jesus pronounces blessing upon His people. The greatest sermon ever begins with blessing. The Old Testament ends with a curse, a threat upon the people. But Jesus shows that there's something new here. Something new happening. In His signature sermon, He begins with blessing. Blessing. And not only that, notice who's, who's pronouncing the blessings. He is. He is. Don't miss this. You know, there's many who say, Jesus never said he was God, you know. Oh, yeah? Old Testament. Numbers chapter 6, one of the most famous blessings. Listen as I read it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to give you peace, so that they shall put My name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. In the Old Testament, who gave the blessing? Who? The Lord. God. In the New Testament, who's giving the blessing? Who is Jesus saying He is? God, the Lord. Jesus says, guess what? I'm God. I'm the King. I'm going to give the blessing. And these people who never knew what it meant to be loved by their rabbis or cared for by their government or wanted by their God, Jesus is saying, guess what? I'm changing that today. I'm blessing you. And I'm blessing you deeper than just being happy. Who are being blessed? Who are the blessed? The answer here surprises you. For the answer goes against everything that the world says it should be. The world says it should be the rich. The world says it should be the beautiful. The world says it should be the powerful. They should be the blessed. But what does Jesus say? The poor in spirit. You know what the word poor here means? It means to cringe. It was the beggar who would cringe when you would come to them and turn away and they would put their, their hand out. But they were so overwhelmed by their need of dependence that they would, they would turn away. It meant to be totally destitute. It meant to be completely dependent upon someone else to survive. And Jesus is not speaking of spirit, uh, physical poverty, but spiritual poverty. It's coming to an understanding that on my own I have nothing, but must throw myself on the mercy of a gracious and loving God. That I must realize my own spiritual poverty apart from Him. I have no hope. I am spiritually destitute without resource or without merit. Lost and hopeless and helpless. 
I stand empty-handed before God. I am like Isaiah 66.2. To this one I look, to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. The psalmist talks about a broken-hearted man and a contrite heart that God will not turn away. It is the personal recognition that I possess nothing to make myself acceptable to an infinitely holy God, but in my poverty, I find mercy. I find mercy. That's what this table is all. When you take from this table today, as you drink the cup, as you take the bread, you're reminding yourself that while you came to Him with nothing in your hand, you found mercy from a God who loves you. Even though you had nothing to bring Him. Even though you had nothing to give Him. He loved you anyway. Wow. But even gets better. I want to share with you very quickly a picture of some of the many poor in spirit counters that we see. We live in a culture that tries to, to minimize God, but I want to exalt Him today. We don't need to bring Him down to our level. We don't need to try to make Him just like us. He is God. He is amazing. He is fearful, and He is wonderful. And God is 100% for the humble and 100% against the self-righteous and proud. Jesus told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. The Pharisee looks around and prays, I thank you, God, that I am not like those who are sinful, especially like that tax collector. And yet the tax collector cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he beat his chest and he could not look up to heaven because he was ashamed of his sin. And on that day, it was the tax collector whose prayer was heard. His heart was poor in spirit. When God called Moses in the wilderness to go and lead his people, Moses said, God, I'm not worthy. Who am I? I'm slow in speech. I'm slow of tongue. And he meant it. But God used him anyway because he was poor in spirit. What about Gideon? God appears to Gideon. Gideon's thrashing wheat. He's hiding. And God says, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. He goes, not me, God. I'm of the smallest tribe, and my family's the weakest in, of that tribe, and I'm the weakest of my family. And he says, Gideon, because you have that weak spirit, because you've got that humble spirit, I'm going to use you. What about, what about Isaiah chapter 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I looked up and I saw the Lord, and I cried out, Woe is me. I am undone. I am doomed. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. And then later on, God says, Who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, Send me. Humble and contrite heart. What about Peter? Good old Peter. Remember the story? 
He's fishing all night long. Jesus borrows his boat. Jesus gets in the boat and, and preaches and ta- teaches. And then he turns to Simon. And he says, now, Simon, I want you to throw your nets on that side of the boat. And, and Simon looks at him. And Peter looks at him and says, uh, Jesus, uh, <laughs> I, I know you're a carpenter. And I know you're a teacher. And I'm a fisherman. Um, I've been fishing all night. But because you said it, I'll do it. You remember what he does? He throws his nets in. And the nets are so full. They start to break. What does he cry out? He says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. I am an unclean man. What about the man full of leprosy? He comes up and says, if you're willing, Jesus, you can make me clean. What about the centurion? The centurion comes up and he says, I am not worthy for you to come into my, to my house, but I have a servant who needs to be healed. If you'll just speak the word, he'll be healed. If you'll just speak the word. Jesus said, I've not even seen anyone with that kind of mindset. What about Augustine? Augustine, one of the great writers in church history, came to God, he said it was his pride that nearly stopped him. It wasn't until he had to reject it and become poor in spirit that he was able to receive his Savior. We were nearly 500 years of the Reformation, and Martin Luther on his conversion realized that all his sacrifice, all his rituals, even his self-abuse meant nothing before God. He had to come as a humble man and poor spirit to become a child of his. Or how about that slave trader who met Jesus and wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, friends, how's your heart? Can you say as the psalmist, create in me a clean heart, O God. You desire a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise. Do you have a poor of spirit heart? Now for the hidden gem. What do they get? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the hidden gem. In the Greek, it's not for theirs. It's for theirs alone. Did you catch that? God gives it to those whose hearts are broken before him, who are humbled before him. Theirs alone. And what do they get? You get the kingdom of God. It's yours. All the blessings, all the gifts. But most of all, a kingdom is not a kingdom unless there's a king. So what Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they get me. They get my Father. They get the Spirit. They get the King.
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Amen?